80 Eckmonts, this is Zach Shiner, and it is January 2020. This episode is fantastic. It's Jason Bardos, University of Minnesota. He and his colleagues, Dimitri Yiannopoulos, they are they're changing the world. I mean, they really are. They're changing how we look at eCPR. They're changing even survival rates that we thought were amazing in the 20% range. They're getting them in the 40% range. And they are setting up processes that, that frankly are I'm jealous of. They they are doing amazing things and I'm looking at their stuff. So I actually had a fantastic interview with Jason. I'm going to break this up into two separate episodes because there's just so much goodness in here. Uh, but before we get into that announcement, reanimate number eight, April 29th and 30th, almost sold out. So if you want to get on that, uh, you better get on it fast. All the usual crew, amazing course to teach you how to do eCPR. And so with that, let's get into it. Welcome to ED ECMO. Welcome to ED ECMO. This is ED ECMO. So, Jason, usually when I interview people, I have one or two or three topics to ask them. For you, I have probably a hundred, and we could talk for hours on the on all the different things. But uh, but today. I'm going to cut to the chase. Is that all right with you? That sounds great. So Jason and his colleagues at the University of Minnesota have put together what is, in my opinion, a game changer for the world. This is ECMO. Has It's been a you know, fledging little thing around the world. People have been doing it. But in Minneapolis, they have now done this right. They have taken a potentially amazing intervention that we all know of as ECMO and turn it into something that actually works, actually saves lives, and not just a few sporadic lives, but a lot of lives. Jason, would you say that's the correct interpretation of your experience? We have definitely worked hard at it, but we have saved a few lives along the way, and we've been very uh, lucky and honored to do that. So Jason uh, is an interventional cardiologist, and in Minneapolis, for those of you that don't know, they take out-of-hospital cardiac arrest directly to the cath lab. They bypass the ER. They take these ambulances straight into the cath lab, put them on ECMO in ridiculously fast times, and have had survivals that have really shown that this therapy is just as good, if not better, than we ever thought it could be. So I think what you've touched on there is really important in that we really employ the entire chain of survival uh, so we have really worked hard with our pre-hospital EMS crews to select patients uh, who have ventricular fibrillation. As soon as they either hear that the first responders before them have de- delivered a shock with an AED or they themselves deliver a shock, they really begin the process. And that process may include a supraglottic airway or an endotracheal tube or an IV, but really they're moving throughout that process as quickly as possible to get the transport initiated so they can get to the hospital as quickly as possible. This decrease in the time from scene or from onset of cardiac arrest to ECMO has certainly been an important part of our program and contributed to our survival. Once they get to the the cath lab, of course, as you mentioned, bypassing the emergency department, coming straight to the cath lab, expanding on the pathways we typically use for STEMI patients that have been around for years, getting those patients in and getting them on ECMO within six minutes of their arrival, therefore stabilizing them to the point where we can pursue the, the needed aspects of post-cardiac arrest care, including uh, coronary angiography, PCI, cooling, um, and the full onslaught and suite of, of uh, procedures 
and therapies available in our ICUs. So really, it's that entire chain and that entire process that has gotten us to this point. Amazing. So let's just dig into this just real quickly. So, Jason, your paper from two years ago in resuscitation showed 48% survival in your first 100 patients. The one that we're going to talk about a lot today, the one that you just published uh, in circulation, showed 33% survival. These are in VF patients, VFVT, patients that were not really worried about bystander CPR, not worried about where they witnessed. We load and go, we get them some amiodarone, a shock, and then get them on the ambulance, drive them straight to the cath lab, and then there you make the assessment. You say, how dead are these people? We give a lactate. If it's greater than 18, they're out. They have a PaO2 that's less than 50, they're out. They have an entitled CO2 less than 10, they're out. But of these patients who got presumptively high-quality chest compressions, high-quality CPR in route, you are then directly putting them on ECMO. You said six minutes. That is just crazy fast. And your outcomes have shown they've been amazing. Yeah, I think the the biggest, and as you saw in this most recent paper, the biggest predictor of our outcome is the time. Uh, And we still to date, uh, which of course includes some patients after that paper, if we have a patient to us within 30 minutes of their cardiac arrest, uh, we have 100% survival still to date. Now that is not going to last forever. And also uh, that is really fast. We don't have many patients that get to us within 30 minutes of their cardiac arrest. But those that do, do extremely well. Uh, That survival drops over time. But that survival dropping over time also includes some patients that you, as you described, that have PAO2s less than 50 or a lactate greater than 18. Those are patients where, despite the best efforts of our paramedics, uh, the resuscitation just was not enough. And we consider them a resuscitation failure and we do not put them on ECMO uh, because of the concerns that they will not come back. That said, the vast majority of patients, um, well over 80% of patients are meeting all of our criteria and able to go ahead with ECMO. Yeah, so cool. Now, one of the things you mentioned right there, and I do want to, I want to ask you this question. I think it's, I think it's the right time, but it's, uh, it's a little bit, a little bit deeper. And that is, fundamentally, you're saying we're waiting for 20 minutes, but that doesn't necessarily mean that these patients aren't even getting benefit earlier than that. So, in your opinion, 2020 in your lab, in your cath lab. Is the time, when is the right time to put somebody on ECMO when they're in cardiac arrest? I think if you've tried three shocks and you've not gotten them back, uh, typically over the first 15 to 20 minutes, then you should be thinking about advanced mechanical support. Now, that early time frame doesn't exist for most out-of-hospital cardiac arrest patients. You just don't have the option to bring them somewhere and put them on ECMO. Perhaps if you are able to deliver ECMO very quickly with that initial a team of paramedics, you would be able to be that fast, but you'd have to distribute the ECMO uh, supplies and the ECMO machines across the entire system, which just is not logistically possible uh, with that sort of speed. So there's always going to be some delay for that first set of paramedics to identify their correct patients. For us, that gets us closer to the 25 to 30 minute mark before they can get to us. And again, that's in a minority of patients that they can get to us that quickly. That said, if they arrested in the hospital, that may offer some some shorter time frame and you would be able to to put people on quickly. Now, if you look at the data, a number of good papers out there looking at large registry uh, data, looking at the likelihood of getting ROSC and surviving after the initiation of CPR. And if you look at people who are in PA or asystole, your timeframes are much shorter. 
But in VF, if you collect, if you if you collect all the patients that have ROSC, typically you have about 80% of your patients with ROSC by 20 to 25 minutes. And the numbers that that you'll get back drop off substantially after that. So there have been studies over the last few years, not from our group, that have looked very much at these, these cohorts and have described the times when it would be okay to transport a patient, those times typically in the 15 to 25 minute window, depending on the cohort and the study. So if you're out there designing a program and you're thinking about when do my paramedics move, you could legitimately say somewhere between 15 and 25 minutes of CPR would be a time when you've really exhausted the majority of your opportunity to get someone back in the field, at which point really you should be thinking about your secondary options like ECMO. Great. That's a, that's a great interpretation. I think, you know, one of the things that comes up for us is is that the NED arrest. So we've got the option right next to us. And probably with you guys in cath, you're, you're cathing someone and they arrest right in front of you. You know, when is the right time? And yeah, I think it's, especially in your hands, maybe not in our hands, but in your hands, the answer is as early as possible. Maybe you get three shocks and then if you don't get them out of it, then uh, you go straight to to the machine, especially since you're looking at 100% survival in your 20 to 29 minute uh, time frame. That's that's better than any kind of outcomes you're going to get with even even VF after only a few minutes. I think that's true, but I, I think to some extent it's dependent on the circumstances of your facility. But I think it gets better with the more you do. So in our hands, the risks of ECMO are much lower than the published risks. Our vascular complication rates one to two percent. Uh, at most of, of meaningful complications that are related to the access site, etc. So with low risk of ECMO, the opportunities of starting earlier are higher. If you don't do much ECMO and you have only a few cases a year, those risks are going to be uh, probably closer to the published rates, in which case the balance of, of the risks of, of initiating ECMO early may not outweigh the benefits of, of just jumping right to mechanical support. But I think, as you point out, the ED is an interesting example, much like the cath lab, in that, generally speaking, if we have an arrest in the cath lab, we have some sense of what's happening with that patient before they arrest, meaning that we know they have a STEMI or we know that they have bad coronary disease that's been diagnosed before, and we have some history for that patient. And in those cases, we have a sense of how quickly we're going to be able to fix this. If they have a STEMI and they've arrested, yes, we give them a shock or two, but if they're not coming back quickly, they're unlikely to come back. If they're a prime, if we, it's possibly a primary arrhythmia, they have a, um, a, a underlying cardiomyopathy, perhaps that one shock would actually be sufficient. Maybe they would come back with a fourth or fifth shock. That's unknown. But in those cases where an ICD would other be otherwise be applicable, that's sort of the, the, um, the expectation is that your ICD shocks would be sufficient. And in those cases, uh, perhaps further shocks in the ED would be useful, not requiring the ECMO. But I think if in the hands of people who can reduce the risk of the ECMO, early ECMO is going to beat out um, all of those other modalities, all the other, the shocking and et cetera, um, earlier than later. Hmm. So this is this is good stuff. We're in we're into the uh, arguments amongst believers in ECMO part of this, which is I, I think awesome. I think we should take a step back though for a second, look at your at this most recent paper because there are still a lot of people who don't think that ECMO maybe even offers that much benefit at all. And what your paper did so nicely is that it shows the 
the, the real benefits of ECMO. So you compared your patient population, which is a VF patient population, to a well-known trial, the ALPS trial, which also included VF patients. And you said, okay, well, let's just look overall. The cohort that got VF and, uh, and one shock uh, versus, and then when it got randomized into the ALPS trial, versus your cohort who had VF, failed ROSC at the scene, failed ROSC in the ambulance, got to your cath lab somewhere, you know, hopefully by 30 minutes, sometimes not as long as 90 minutes, and you compared those overall outcomes and you showed that your outcomes were still better than the overall outcomes in the ALPS trial. That's right. So if you look at patients who presumably receive standard CPR, now I will challenge that this is actually probably better than standard CPR as experienced by most patients across the country. This came from the ROC consortium with well-trained paramedics. And really, these are frequent resuscitation crews. And these are people that are really well-trained. So to that extent, they may be better than standard of care uh, ACLS therapies. But that said, if we consider them standard of care for ACLS, at the point where their patients are receiving zero to nine minutes of CPR, their survival was around 65%. It drops off by 17 minutes, by 17% every 10 minutes from there on out to the point where they had no survivors in the amiodarone arm of the ALPS trial beyond 40 minutes of CPR. If you look at our data from the ECMO population, Again, if you're getting to us within 30 minutes, you have 100% survival, and we don't have anybody that got to us within 20 minutes. It was They were all in the 20 to 30-minute range, and again, with the caveat that it's a small number of patients. But then for every 10 minutes, we have an additional 25% mortality. So it does decrease faster than in the standard CPR group, but it starts so much higher and so much later that the benefits far outweigh standard CPR. So in our uh, adjusted analysis, if you adjusted for things like age, sex, race, uh, whether the the uh, arrest was witnessed, whether there's bystander CPR, if it occurred in a public location, it gave us an odds ratio of almost 21 in favor of uh, the ECMO and the eCPR program. Now, again, I, I want to make clear, it's not just the ECMO doing this. In all likelihood, it's the entire pathway. It's the pre-hospital care. It's the the ECMO placement and the, the cath and the PCI and the post-arrest care. It's that entire path that's playing a role here. But certainly, without the ECMO, these patients don't make it to any of the part of the path after that. So it is a critical component of that. And our data, as compared to the amiodarone arm, of course, not on a randomized trial, but compared to the closest uh, cohort that we could muster in terms of being shock refractory patients who received amiodarone in the ALPS trial, um, it showed a drastic increase in survival much later in the time course of the cardiac arrest. Yeah. I mean, as best as you can compare apples to apples, now some would argue, okay, but you also had the addition of lactates and PAO2s and entitled CO2s. But I mean, come on, this is compelling data that eCPR, your whole package, like you just said, improves the survival for these out-of-hospital cardiac arrests. And I give uh, credit also to Brian Grunau for, for you know, helping you out with this, because this is, it's just such a great paper that we should all use uh, to, to tell, you know, people who are, who are looking at the data uh, on, at a first time, like look at each of these 10-minute cohorts. Each of the 10-minute cohorts shows better outcomes if you got eCPR than if you did not. 
It does. And I think Brian Grunau was a tremendous help with this, pro with this project. And he was integral in those other papers I was discussing from the past, looking at cohorts, describing the time dependency. So this is really, it fits very nicely with his, his previous work um, in standard ACLS and the time dependency there. I think here the important part is if you're going to design a program, you have to really consider the time and the realization that ECMO itself is not enough. You have to have an entire program built around it to deliver it quickly is really important. When we're looking at studies that are out there looking at eCPR and other settings from other um, places, if you have a third of your patients receiving ECMO 90 minutes plus after the arrest, your survival is definitely going to be lower. And I think that's something we intuitively know or feel but this data shows it. And while we do have survivors and we have about 10 to 15% survival all the way out past 90 minutes, it is much lower than it is if you get the patients in quickly. And so that's a, a key component to any program where eCPR is gonna be delivered. Okay. All right, I wanna move on into the next component here, which I think is, I think you're gonna agree is a critical part. And that is that you own your patients. Once they leave the cath lab, once they've already been initiated on ECMO, you're still caring for them. Is that correct? That's absolutely true, yes. So tell us about this, because this is where your, your paper in resuscitation, uh, we should all go back over, because it says so many, there's so many pearls in there that tell us how to manage these patients. Tell us about your post-initiation care. Right, so th this is absolutely critical, because these patients eyeball poorly, meaning that if you are a typical physician walking into the room, you would assume a poor prognosis upon gazing upon them. They have many machines. They have trauma from CPR. They have multiple inotropes, pressors, the ventilator, all these things that just scream poor prognosis. And we know already in the cardiac arrest population that people are withdrawn on too early. The care is withdrawn, partly because we're telling families that the prognosis is poor and the family wants to withdraw earlier, but also because the belief in the field and in, in the world of critical care is that these people have a poor prognosis. Now, compared to your average cardiac surgery patient or STEMI patient, they may have a poor prognosis because their survival is only 40%, but their survival is not 0%. And the fact that Dimitri Yiannopoulos, who of course, has um, been integral in this program, building this program here in Minnesota beyond, before the ECMO portion of this uh, ever came to be. Um, he and I have been taking care of these patients in the ICU and again, shepherding them through their entire process to discharge since the beginning of this program, since 2015. And that's the important part of that is that we've had the ability to control the message for families and control the care uh, and the extent of the care that these patients provide. But we don't operate even in a vacuum. So while we are there telling families that we don't know what the prognosis is for the first week, which is our general message, we wait a week before we start prognosticating. We also are surrounded by people who provide excellent care and can help us in that effort. And the most notable of those, just because it's the most dramatic in often cases, is our, our surgeons. So we've had multiple patients, including one in that paper, where they had a right ventricular rupture from the fractured sternum being pushed into their right ventricle. That patient developed acute pericardial tamponade, and they tamponaded their ECMO circuit to the point where they could not have ECMO flow because of the high pressures in the pericardium. Our surgeons 
arrived when we called and they asked or they mentioned to us that if we think that patient had a chance to survive, they would take him to the operating room and open him and and drain and fix whatever's there. At that point, we didn't know that there was a rupture in the right ventricle, though it was highly suspected. We said we think he has a chance to survive, and so they took him. That aggressive care at every level is what's absolutely required to get these people through this. He went on to survive and is playing the organ in his church. That's so cool. He would have died in almost every ECPR program, much less any hospital across the country. So the aggression of the of the staff and the the ability, the willingness to take these patients in the emergencies at all times of day and night to take care of the problems they have are absolutely critical because they do have many problems. These are very sick people with trauma. They are really a, a polytrauma patient on top of a cardiac arrest patient on top of a cardiac STEMI patient in many cases. And you've, you've got to be able to treat all of that to get them through. Yeah, that brings up the most recent papers uh, with the CT scanning. And I kind of wonder, at, in your facility, obviously they're going straight to the cardiac cath lab where they get the ECMO first. In a place like, like my institution, we also have this question coming up on whether we should actually take them to the CT scanner before they go to the cath lab. What are your thoughts on that? I think we don't know the answer to which one of those two should come first. I think both of them should happen. And I think we have good reason to think that they are both incredibly important. The cath lab, because there's a, in the setting of refractory VF, there's a very high prevalence of coronary artery disease, 85% in the paper published by uh, Dr. Yiannopoulos and myself in Jack, um, and maybe even higher in some subgroups. Um, and then also we have polytrauma. And for us, we go to the cath lab first because that's where, put in, where we're putting in the ECMO, and we go straight from the cath lab to the CT scanner before going to the ICU. Uh, but there is very valuable information in those CT scans, some of it, which I think we're just now starting to unpack. Part of it, the, the trauma, part of it, potential prognostication benefit of that very early head CT, um, and possibly some etiology information in some uh, specific cases. But those, you know, the pneumos, the hemothoraces, the um, hemoperitoneums that you develop because of the trauma from an hour of CPR, in our case, they are getting, on average, an hour of CPR. That trauma is very important to see early and treat early to prevent future uh, issues. And I think if you don't do that, those CTs early, we would have missed a lot in our patients that could have caused issues down the road. Mm, that's great. Yeah, so I think how I'm putting this together right now, at least in programs where we don't go directly to the cath lab, is that the answer is probably cath lab first. Now, in some cases, when you've got your cath lab coming in from home, maybe the answer is put them in the CT scanner right after you put them on ECMO, or at least after you stabilize them, do the initial uh, post-pump, post-initiation changes, but get them to the CT scanner and just see if you've got anything that needs to be fixed immediately, especially if you have a few minutes before the cath lab team arrives. I do think that's true. I think that first two to four hours is absolutely critical. And as much as you can do as quickly as you can do it, the better you are. So if you, if you're putting the ECMO in, in the ED and you can go through the CT scanner on your way to the cath lab, it makes complete sense to make that, make that arc through the CT scanner. If you're doing it in the, the cath lab, it makes sense to complete the cath lab portion of that to reduce the number of transitions for these patients because they are somewhat fragile, partly because of trauma and also because of the risks with the ECMO. 
the, if you can minimize that movement and do everything you need to do in the cath lab, then go to the CT scanner and then go to the ICU, that has worked really well for us. But I, I agree with you. I think you pack as much as you can in as short of a time frame uh, upon their arrival. Okay, I want to get back to the idea of managing them in the ICU. One of the things you said in your paper, which I think is such a great line, it said, all patients were eligible for any necessary intervention until determination of death. That is just such a cool, like, hey, we are still going 100% until we've decided that we're not. I really appreciate you pulling out that line because I think that summarizes the mentality of our team. That idea that just like I mentioned with the surgery, cardiac surgery, whether it be the open heart or, or trying to repair an RV rupture or be something as simple as, um, as a scope for a GI bleed. All of those procedures are available just like they would be for any other hospitalized patient. And just because they've had a cardiac arrest, does not, it does not make them ineligible for anything. Uh, of course, when we get to the point where the prognosis is poor, the family wants to withdraw, um, or they've herniated and they have irreversible uh, catastrophic brain injury, that's a different story. And we, we do have some people, I, again, I mentioned that we don't really prognosticate until a week into their post-arrest course, but we do have some people who have brain herniation before that point, and at that point, we'll stop. But up to that point, we're going to do everything we can to treat them as aggressively as possible to give everyone a chance. This is, you know, as people think about these patients, if they don't take care of them, they will often sort of build a picture in their mind of, of an elderly gentleman who comes in and was really at the end stages of life with terminal illnesses. And, and these are just the people who are putting on ECMO. I think anybody who works with these patients realizes that it's very different. These are people with their average age in their 50s. They have a long life, including work and retirement and, and family ahead of them. Uh, they uh, are pretty healthy, actually, in general cases or in most cases uh, before they have their cardiac arrest. So they have a good quality of life to return to. So for us to fight for every moment of that life that we can up to the point where, where it's not possible anymore, where we have reached the determination that they are not going to survive, it's, it's worth it for these people to have those, uh, that potential for years of life ahead of them. Hmm. Yeah, it's so good. I mean, I'm sure your story, you could fill up a room of stories just like us. We, we have a case that uh, will probably be on EDECMO next month uh, that is just phenomenal. Of you just realize like these are people that have realized that their their worst their bad their worst tear day of their life is the day that they come in in cardiac arrest. But once they get through that, they can be normal, you know, healthy, live long life, and just uh, just keep going. I guess is the is the idea in in many of these patients. That's absolutely true, and. You know, we 40% survival is, is still hard on the team. I will say, you know, the, the counter or the, the balance to all of this is the effects on the care team. And when 60% of your patients die, it takes its toll on the caregivers. But we all live through those cases, which are 40% of them, where people are leaving the hospital, doing well, going back to their vacations. We've had people make it back just in time for their pre-planned vacation, going back to the, the events with their family, those sort of landmark events that we all think about uh, with our families, going back to retirement at, you know, up here in Minnesota, lake cabins are, are a big uh, phenomenon. They're going back to their vacation homes, their, their lake cabins. They're having quality of life, which is fantastic. 
And when we see them come back to clinic or we see them come back to visit in the ICU to sort of visit the people who took care of them, it reminds us all why we're doing this. And again, it's it's it does take its toll and team has to be prepared for more losses than successes in most cases, but the successes are entirely worth it. Okay. So awesome, Jason. I want to get into a little bit of this prognostication stuff. Uh, I think most of us that are listening to this have had our fair share of frustrations over neuroprognostication, of withdrawal of life support too early, of trying to neuroprognosticate somebody at, at 24 hours in or you know even three days in, as you're talking about. I think in your papers, you mentioned no neuroprognostication until they're normal thermic times 72 hours. I love it. The one that, and, and I think we can all kind of agree that that's, that you, you from a neurologic standpoint, you got to wait unless you see a CT scan that shows herniation. But the one that's even more frustrating to me that I, I, I want to get your opinion on is this concept of the death spiral. The patients that are getting more and more pressors, they're, they're cardiovascularly unstable. Can you just speak to that, that patient population and, and your ability to prognosticate them early? Yeah, so I think the, as you described, the hemodynamically unstable death spiral patients are a challenge. We do not have many of them in the era of ECMO. I think what we find in ECMO is that those patients that develop such profound post-cardiac arrest syndrome that they are really unretrievable uh, from that spiral are very few and far between. In fact, in our patients in that the study uh, that was published uh, in 2018, we had about 10% of people that had such refractory shock that we could not resuscitate them. Now, I will say in many cases, what we find in the end is that those people had bowel perforations from ischemic bowel or some other aspect of their physiology that, that made them so profoundly uh, uh, refractory in their hypotension that, that multiple pressors plus ECMO could not suffice. But in, in even in those cases, there is an opportunity if you can bridge them through the first few hours with multiple pressures, some of them still come back. That is not, while it is a death spiral, it is not a death determination. And you can sometimes pull them out of the, of the spiral. Uh, but it is very, very challenging. Prognosticating that for us has meant that we try everything we can until we cannot physically support them in their hypotensive despite all of our efforts, which is typically four to five pressors and uh, the ECMO at full, fl full flow as best as we can achieve it. Um, and for those people, then we talk to the family about how we cannot support them despite all those efforts. That, in every case, has happened in the first two to three days. We have not had somebody who has done well and then um, crashed later in that respect. Um, we have certainly had people who have died earlier or died later um, of other causes, um, but not of that refractory shock because it tends to be in the throes of the onset of post-cardiac arrest syndrome when it really is uh, beyond what any of us can really uh, support. Um, neuroprognostication, on the other hand, though, is really challenging. I think the, the topic of neuroprognostication, yes, we've all been frustrated with it. Absolutely, I agree with you. But we don't really have great tests and we don't have great studies to guide us in which tests would be best. And I think the fundamental reason comes down to what the recommendations are from, from AHA, which is multi-modality efforts. And multi-modality efforts are very hard to study in trials. And for us, uh, we use multiple tests to build a picture, um, including clinical exam, but also biomarkers, imaging, EEG. We put all this together to try to build a picture for the families 
But in the end, we don't have large clinical trials or even small clinical trials to guide us in which combinations would be best at which times. And it's science yet to be done. I think this is a, a critical topic, uh, but one that we have yet to really uh, delve into uh, in the world of, of cardiac arrest, much less in the world of eCPR where our populations are still quite small. So, so yeah, let's, let's jump into that for just a second. I know in your paper you talked about NEARS. You had some increased survival or showed some increased survival with the numbers that increased. Uh, I think you talked about serum enolase as well. Do you use NEARS? You said you're using the, all these in combination, but it seems to me like the NEARS data is maybe the most compelling of them. I think NEARS uh, has its place. If you see large changes, uh, you can de- definitely adjust and try to do further diagnostic workup. We don't tend to use the NEARS for prognostication uh, because the differences between, even in the paper that we published two years ago, uh, the differences were small. So you're looking at plus or minus 10 points and really looking at patients that are increasing, doing well, uh, patients who are decreasing in their NEARS uh, values are doing poorly, and people in the middle may die of other causes. Uh, but there's such significant overlap between those groups that it, it is challenging to prognosticate in a definitive way with that. What we tend to use more is the head imaging, uh, where the CTs, that early CT, as you mentioned, taking the patient to the CT right away, uh, does provide some prognostic uh, information. We use the characteristics of the cardiac arrest. Did they have bystander CPR? Did they have a long downtime? Those things, just in retrospect, to help guide us a little bit. We use their initial lactate and their clearance of lactate. So if you uh, look at patients that clear their lactate within 24 hours and get close to a normal value, those folks tend to do better uh, than people who have chronically or prolonged elevation of their lactic acids. People with um, uh, with severely elevated troponins, severely elevated creatinins uh, that, that don't uh, rebound and recover, uh, those people tend to do more poorly. And those with EEGs that are either completely flat or uh, have seizures also tend to do more poorly. But again, these are things that no single one of those would be enough for us to stop. None of them are going to come into play to be uh, part of our decision-making within the first week. Uh, And they need to all come together with the picture that you're seeing in front of you. If the patient uh, in front of you is is starting to move, and even if it's non-purposeful, but they're starting to move, then that alone would, would be enough for us to delay a little bit our prognostication to see if there's a trend in their clinical exam that we haven't yet uh, fully manifested before we start making decisions and talking to families. This, as I tell families when I first meet them, right after I put their loved one on ECMO and they're going to the CT scanner, I tell them it's going to be a long road and it's frustrating. And it is. The families get very frustrated. We get frustrated as as practitioners and, and physicians because it's a long road. Uh, but that patience pays off. And we have cases where people have woken up from complete coma three weeks later and you know, those cases make you doubt a lot about your ability to prognosticate. And it really has pushed back our, our uh, thought process on when we're comfortable telling a family member that there is no more hope. All right, folks. So I'm going to cut us off right there. That's part one of the Jason Bardos interview. Fantastic stuff out of the University of Minnesota. But I'll tell you, Stay tuned for next month's the second part of his interview because I'm telling you, they Jason is going to start talking about what they're doing, what they're thinking about doing, what they've already planned, and it is crazy. 
And by crazy, I mean crazy awesome what the University of Minnesota, what Minneapolis, what their cardiac arrest plan, strategy has become. Jason and his crew, Dimitri Yiannopoulos, they have done amazing stuff. All right, so for January, Edie Ekmo, Zach Shiner, signing off.